2: The pain peeling off the
3: walls. Good Welcome night. to the Catherine Sox. Show. I'm Catherine Sox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Good morning. I have two guests joining me this morning. My first guest is author of Collective Visioning, How Groups Can Work Together for a Just and Sustainable Future, something we all need to know about and all need to get involved in. Linda Stout is the author. Linda is the founder and director of Spirit in Action, she previously led the Piedmont Peace Project in North Carolina, which won the National Grassroots Peace Award. Uh, our, that's my first guest. Second guest is Dr. Vicky Ratner. Vicki is founder of the Pain Stompers. Painstompers.com is her website. You can go to that for more information. Uh, PainStompers.com, immediately improving the quality of life for family and friends of people in pain. Well, I'm your social worker with a microphone, so I guess both guests are going to help us to improve our quality of life in very different ways. Linda's going to talk to us about creating a different future. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. It's great to be here. Thank you. Well, you have a daunting task, and I—I I, don't—I say have, but I guess you have been doing it. You are uh, a community organizer, as you describe yourself. Uh, yeah. And w- let's talk about the book specifically, though. Collective visioning—I mean, I guess the premise. Tell us the premise. I read the book. It seems to me that what you're saying, Linda, is that we get together to, as groups, diverse groups, to try to accomplish things to help ourselves, our families, the planet, but we don't seem to be able to get together and be productive. Well,
4: I, I think we are productive at times, but I think I'm writing this book to say how can we become more than the sum of our parts? How can we come together and work in a way that is positive and has a vision and can mobilize people to be really successful and to create a movement that can really change things?
3: So Linda, what would you say the problem is, or the problems, or what's the salient, what's the problem that we have today here in the United States, 2011, that we need to address? And then how do we address it using, you know, using uh, the Im- while well, using the information and the, I guess I call it a paradigm that you espouse in the book.
4: Well, I think there's so many problems I couldn't even begin to <laughs> list all of them. But you know, education energy issues, health care, all the things that affect all of us and the greater divide that's constantly growing between the very, very top 1% of the rich and and the working class and middle class and poor people who are getting uh, less and less income um, on a daily basis. So there's so many issues that we have to address, and they are hard to disconnect. You have to, I mean, you can work on one of the issues because everybody can't work on all the issues, obviously, but how do we work together uh, around our values that is about having a just and sustainable world and population that we can uh, be more effective? And so that's what the book is about. It's a one, how do we bring people together and and build trust and build connections and create an environment that everyone feels welcome? Because certainly as someone who grew up in poverty and didn't have a college education, when I first started trying to join just, social justice movements, I often felt very isolated and like I could never be a leader or never be a part of it. And I could never make change except as an individual. So um, I wanted to um, figure out how can we build a movement that poor people and people of color and working class people and uh, immigrant people can all join together in a movement for change. Uh, well, like are you
3: talking about a- Linda? Are you talking about people who are because the group that you just named? Uh, disenfranchised people or vulnerable people Well, disenfranchised people
4: along with middle class people and wealthy people who care about justice. So often those folks, though, are often left out without a voice. And so I talk about how do we bring those folks in? How do we create an environment? And then I think, you know, one of the things that I think is the greatest problem we have in organizing a, a successful movement is we have to hold out a vision of what it is we're trying to build, what we want to create, what our hope is if we're going to mobilize thousands
3: of people, but it can't stop there. But how do we all come to the same – do we have the same vision? I mean, you look at – I mean, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the United States. I'm thinking today, right now, we've got the far right, the religious right, very strong group of people. You know, it's not just uh, working class, middle class, and upper class, Uh, and so we have the religious Right, and those people who are... We don't have the same vision. I mean, yeah. it's really clear that we don't have the
4: same vision, and that's why I'm very specific about those who want to build a just and sustainable world, uh, those who care about social justice and equity. and uh, its But there are a lot of us that hold those values that aren't working for change because we either don't know how or we feel disenfranchised or we feel hopeless of making any kind of change. It's like Democrat, Republic, uh, can Democrat or Republican president doesn't make a lot of difference in a poor pe- people's community. So um, how do we make change that's really going to be long-term and sustainable? And that's what I'm trying to look at. And You know, this book is not just my idea. It was created through working with people all over the country to think collectively about what is needed, how do we do this, how do we create um, a movement that can really work, and we experimented with it. And so this book is about that process and what we learned, and I think... You know, one of the primary things is how do we create relationships with each other? And I am talking about those of us who want it to change for a positive way for everyone, you know, not those who are looking for personal gain or, you know, to get rich or anything like that. Because I know there are a lot of vision books out there like that, and uh, that's not what this is. Well, you've talked about...
3: Yeah, the overall yeah, philosophy, ahead. and I think now, you know, I think we have an understanding of what that is. I like to get specific, like what... Okay. Yeah, take the problem, you know, as we see it or as you see it, or and, and where are you going with it, the vision, and then how do you, you know, and you have a lot of examples in your book, and then how do you get there? And the process very specifically related to specific topics.
4: Okay, so, for example, um, after Katrina... I was asked to come in by organizers in New Orleans uh, and they wanted to help rebuild the public schools and they wanted to involve children. And so uh, they decided to work with junior high school kids. So every year I go down and I do visioning. And that first year, these were ninth ward kids who were most hard hit by the floods. Uh, Most of their communities were, all their communities were destroyed and they were very traumatized kids, and um, I had to figure out how am I going to do visioning with these children who are so traumatized, and so um, they wanted to change things in their school before Katrina, like they wanted toilet paper and soap and doors on the stalls in the bathrooms, and they wanted their own textbooks, and they wanted to have enough desks for everyone to sit in, things that, a lot of us take for granted. And um, so we began to do visioning through a time machine. We, drove, we rode through a time machine and um, envisioned that the schools of the future that were the best schools in the world because children had created them. And um, one of the kids said to me, well, this is all just pretend. And I said, you're right, it is pretend unless we create a plan you know, and prioritize what we can do this year, next year, the following year. And every year we revisit the vision. And um, they have accomplished amazing things. These are kids who a majority were thought to be headed for dropout of, you know, before they finished school. And um, they went on to... Uh, designed green bathrooms that won national awards. They designed uh, schools. They've made it a rule now that every new school built in New Orleans has to have a community garden. Uh, They've worked on creating welcoming circles and restorative justice circles instead of the uh, metal detectors that are in every school in New Orleans. See, these, and they uh, just this is, want uh, a okay, multi... We have a
3: couple minutes left for this segment. And yeah. We'll take a okay, break and sorry. we'll be back. But you know what? That that's a, uh, I, I love that story. It's not a story. It's not a story. <laughs> it's not a, uh, a a fairy tale. It's a truth. And you, that is very specific. And I love it. And it looks like, uh, obviously, these kids and working with you did a lot. But, mm-hmm. okay, that group is very... Uh, homogeneic, uh, homogeneous, so now when we come back, how do we do that? When you get these the Republicans and the Democrats, or you get a community get together, and you have black and white, and Asian, and old and young, seniors and young people. Mm-hmm. So that's the diverse group who has to come up with that vision and a solution in the same way, let's say, you did with these kids. But, of course, they had something in common. I mean, they had, which would, right. uh, you know, a common disaster that happened to them, and they were also recipients of a terrible school system even before this happened. So let the, it gets a little more complicated, I would think. Um, we'll take a short break, and uh, we'll be okay. back in a minute. Well, we'll see if you can solve that problem for us. Linda Stout, uh author of collective visioning how groups can work together for a just and sustainable future don't go away we'll be back in a minute i'm katherine zox your social worker with the microphone on voiceamericavariety.com world talk radio and you're listening to the katherine zox show
1: be sure to friend us on facebook you can do it right now Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Tune in
2: every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time for The Growth Strategist with Aldona Ambler. On the show, Aldona and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldona will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart. Grow profit. And grow your business with Aldana Ambler and the Growth Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.
1: Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even co-worker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things. And together, you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety.
2: And listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjo Gall. Listen in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m.
0: Pacific, right here on Voice America Business. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah!
2: You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
3: Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. You're listening to the Catherine Zock Show here on Wednesday morning, and uh, the author of Collective Visioning, How Groups Can Work Together for a Just and Sustainable Future is joining me, Linda Stout. Um, Linda and I, uh, well, Linda, you were talking about, maybe we should just reiterate in case somebody just tuned in, but uh, you are a community organizer. I keep saying that. brings good visions to Mm -hmm. mind, at least, (laughs) for Uh, uh, President Obama, but uh, you've created this what? what do you, how do you describe it? A way of organizing diverse groups so that they can have a vision and accomplish the vision and uh, work for a just and sustainable future. Would that be it?
4: Yeah, I, that's exactly <laughs> it. And it can be done between organizations or in communities or in schools, as we talked about earlier. And um, I think it's um, – It's about how we come together around our values and and work together to really change things for ourselves that's really uh, grounded in our values and our hearts and our love for each other. So let's
3: take the example. I think a a community, medium-sized community, has to make certain decisions. They come together at a town meeting. And you do have a diverse group of people. You have a group ethnically, socioeconomically, uh, education, uh, different values, religious, et cetera. How do you get these people together? How do you get them to come to agree on a vision, and then how to accomplish that vision so that they can do what they need to do to make their communities better communities for everybody to live and work in? Right. Well,
4: that's that's a key is that everybody can live and work in, and and there's some people who won't agree with that piece, and they they are probably not going to be part of the discussion. but um, They're going to leave the meeting early? (laughs) Probably. But it begins with just telling our stories and getting to know each other and creating a welcoming space that everyone can be a part of. That's the first thing. And then that's why I call it collective visioning because it's not one vision. It's not shared. It's not a common vision. But once we put all our visions up together, then we can begin to say okay this is the kinds of things most of us really want and there may be some people who say i don't want that i you know i don't want poor people part of the community or and they may walk out at that point but that's most people really do hold values that are Good human values that care about each other and often don't understand each other. And so when I first started organizing in rural North Carolina and it was the first multiracial organization, we did have, you know, Republicans who supported Jesse Hams and we had a couple young members who were, had been raised Klan members and, um, but we began to talk about the things we really cared about and we began to, build trust with each other and tell our stories to each other and then a vision can lead us to kind of look at well what are our priorities and what do we want to choose to work on together and maybe we can't agree on these two things but we can agree on these other things and we can move forward with that and try to understand each other at a deeper level and that's I think it's building that conversation in and building that trust in and giving time for us to kind of play together and really get to know each other, and then our work for change can become much more effective and much more powerful. Yeah,
3: We've That makes, I mean, that makes a lot over. of sense from a social work point of view. I mean, you know, uh, once you get to know and understand and, and hear, as you say, other people's stories. Um, it, it, you're not. You're not looking at the enemy. You, you know. You're, that's right. You're looking at a that's friend. Right. But uh, you know, in chapter five, you have same vision, different strategies. I think that's an important point to point to. To the, maybe we should discuss because people often have the same vision. They don't realize it, but they just have different strategies, different ways of getting to that or accomplishing that vision.
4: Exactly. Well, for example, next weekend, one of our national networks that we've built, and um, my organization, Spirit in Action, Um, is called the Education Circle of Change. And we brought folks together who had not ever worked together before, and there were people who worked on public education issues and really cared deeply about public education. And then we brought folks in who work on alternative um, democracy and free schools uh, because they felt the public schools didn't give all that they felt needed to happen, and uh, as well as parent groups and teacher groups and folks working on public policy. And so coming together, we had the same vision, but we had different strategies. And often groups split apart across those strategies, like, oh, you don't work on public education, I'm not going to talk to you because you're doing something different over here. And what they found is if they work together, that it could be this powerful tool for each other. For example, you know, if we do reform public schools, and we will, um, some of the alternative justice schools are showing us a pathway. Of how we can do it differently or alternative energy sources are showing us as in around environmental work a different pathway that we can use so it's important to include all those different strategies as part of our way of thinking and I talk about folks who work on consciousness shift and that would be people like yourself who are doing media or the poets or the musicians or, you know, the artists in our groups that are really doing the kind of work that helps shift people's thinking. And that's, a, that's an important role as well. And so all of that has
3: to be a part of the whole. Well, Linda, what has been the most difficult Challenge for you. Are there any specific groups or any you know that you've been you've worked with or any projects that you've been involved in that you say oh this was like really the toughest one and that maybe failed or that were successful? Well, I think there's some organizations
4: that have been around for a long time and then they try to go. They then they try to build diversity and there's usually. couple people who just hold on to those old ways of doing things and the group either has to make a decision they're at a crossroads do we let go of a couple people so we can move forward and really become diverse or do we hold on to these old ideas that even most of us don't believe in anymore and that's where I see groups really struggle and fall the most Uh, groups who skip over those steps and say, oh, you know, we have this campaign or 9-11 just happened or, you know, this horrible thing is happening. We don't have time to do storytelling or visioning. And they jump ahead and start working and then they fall apart and they don't understand why and they get discouraged and hopeless. And so... There's that and then there's always the the folks that try to stop the work that's about justice. I mean, you know, in North Carolina there were Ku Klux Klan members who came out in droves who tried to stop the multiracial organizing that we were doing and um and you know, was really threatening to people. So, so what um happened?
3: when they came out. I mean, people sometimes, it becomes too frightening and people do leave under those circumstances because they afraid for their fi- Yeah, Some their people family. got
4: hurt. Some people lost jobs. But as a group, folks stood together for the most part. And, uh, stood up against the threats and stood together. And in fact, I tell one story that's a beginning of a community working and having success in my first book, Bridging the Class Divide, that I finish 14 years later in this book, Collective Visioning, uh, because they just had a victory of really achieving their vision from 14 years ago. And I think that's really important. It's not that they didn't make steps along the way, but to get to where they wanted to go took that long. And there were many times that there were outside forces that tried to divide them as a community. And they did not let that happen because they had done all this groundwork first to build the trust, to build the community, to build the vision.
3: What do you think, because we, well, we don't have a lot of time left, but I think you're the person to ask this question. You know, somebody like a Sarah Palin, who is so, you know, they talk about appealing to the base, the base. I, I always think, is she appealing to the basis? But that's my, yeah. <laughs> my prejudice, but uh, and that's my prejudice, so... You know, but you have somebody who 's a very powerful person out there uh, and has a lot of the attention of the media. How does that fit in what what kind of you know it's, it's, isn 't that one you know thing? i yeah.
4: I think people like that who put um, you know bullet signs on and and speak of taking people out on their website and speak hatred in the name of their spiritual leader, whoever that be, God or anyone else, is not true to any kind of um, understanding that I know of love and and spiritual practice. So um, I just think that you can't... Um, speak against hatred against other people or try to exclude whole groups of people you have to look at you know what is just and what are the values and you know if if she believes in jesus and you read the Bible, Jesus' values were very different
3: than what I hear come from some of these folks who... So my Christianity. have answered the question, but, uh, you know, this. we have two minutes left, so I guess I just wonder... Two two things: why the media has a need to give this particular person, or Sarah Palin, so much attention, and what's our need to be listening to this stuff all the time? Because I think if you're listening to one thing, you're not. I mean, maybe then you're not listening to other things, and you're spending your time and your energy devoted to this. This. this, I think it's. Yes. So often. Yeah. Yeah. One last
4: word. (laughs) I I think people are often miseducated as opposed to not being educated by the media and by who they listen to. You know, When I've heard statistics that 50% of people listen to National Fox News, which has a lot of opinions that are about hurting people and
3: hating people. And... So, so, so I, there. instead of Fox News, why don't we I buy can... your book, Linda Stout, Collective Visioning. We have yes, a very positive thank way of changing the world and sustaining how groups can work together for just a sustainable future. Thanks so much for being on the show. I hate to cut you short, but we had our half hour, and I appreciate it. That's great. Great. Thank you. Thank you. We'll we'll be back in a minute. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Coming up next is Dr. Vicki Ratner, founder of PainStompers, painstompers.com, and how to improve the quality of life for family and friends of people in pain. Unfortunately, that's millions of people here in the United States.
1: future of online tv is here view exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else visit voiceamerica.tv today do you know what a brat is no we're not talking about that kind of brat brat stands for british regimental attached traveler it was adopted by american culture after world war ii when american military began long-term assignments at u.s military installations worldwide Learn about the brat culture, the lost tribe, by tuning in to BratCon Radio with host Dennis Campbell and associate producer and co-host Jerry Glass. There are almost 8 million living brats. Hear from them and from guests who studied or examined them. Tune in Thursdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: Are there any challenges to your success? You already have what it takes to turn these challenges into results in any area. Find out more when you tune in to The Power of Realism, Why Integrity Matters, with host Jeffrey Canavan. We all deal with adversity and challenges in life and business. We'll talk with those individuals who have faced these challenges and turned them into success stories. By making just a few shifts in your thinking, you too can be one of these success stories. The Power of Realism airs live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on Voice America Business.
2: You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
3: Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And it's the Catherine Zox Show joining me this morning for the first, maybe this may be the third time Dr. Vicki Ratner has been on the show because she's got lots of good stuff for us. She's founder of Pain Stompers com. You can go to our website for more information. Immediately improving the quality of life for family and friends of people in pain. And Dr. Vicki, as we call her, is a former surgeon, author, and speaker. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on again, Dr. Vicki. Delight to be here. Great to have you. Painstompers. Well, of course, uh, you and I have been talking about this, but who's in pain? You know, we have what? Our population now is 320 million, I think. We have. Uh, Baby boomers are just turning 65, so we have a lot of people, I think, in a lot of pain, physical and emotional pain. Uh, Do we have any numbers? Do you know specifically? We do. We know
5: that 70 million Americans experience chronic pain. So that's not the kind of pain you stub your toe and it's going to go away. That means that you wake up in the morning and know that pain is going to be part of your day-to-day experience. 70 million people if you add up the number of heart disease and stroke and cancer and diabetes patients, it doesn't add up to the number
3: who have chronic pain. This is a huge issue. And chronic pain, I think it, it gets. it's not just people staying at home who are invalids in pain. We're talking to people who have to go out, take care of their kids, their families, have to be in the workplace. What's the impact of that on all of these kinds of behaviors?
5: It 's the erosion of life it 's estimated that we spend about a hundred billion dollars in direct and indirect costs associated with pain. You know, I became a doctor to help save lives, and I feel like when you can help somebody manage their chronic pain, and you
3: can save their life. so when you 're talking about chronic pain and we live with chronic illness, don't we have to kind of say that too, because people stay. Are kept alive longer and they but they're also in pain and I think sometimes and I think even physicians sometimes Dr. Vicky, well they figure well you're alive you should be happy you're you know you're with your family you're able to work they minimize the effect of pain or they try to drug you and 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 say goodbye right here's the big
5: news headline the people on the cutting edge of pain research believe that chronic pain is a disease of the brain. So AIDS, for example, is a disease of the immune system, and you can have all sorts of different problems. You can have weird pneumonias or strange cancers. Well, chronic pain is a disease of the brain, like AIDS is a disease of the immune system. And these different conditions like fibromyalgia and chronic back pain and chronic headaches are probably sort of different variations of this brain disease. And the great news is that we're learning how maybe we can
3: treat this brain disorder. So can you describe to us what that actually means, a brain disorder? Does that mean there's a chemical imbalance in the brain, or there's spots of the brain that are diseased, or what does that mean to the layperson? Well, we don't
5: know exactly what it means yet, but here's what we do know. We can put people in an MRI machine and watch what part of the brain lights up with certain mental activity. And what we know is that when somebody has acute pain, at least six different parts of the brain light up. If we take a look at people with chronic pain, it's different. What we know is that pain decreases your brain's ability to deal with the pain. So there's something that happens in the presence of chronic pain. We don't know exactly what it is yet. We don't know exactly how to fix it, but what we do know is that the brain is very plastic, which means it can change. So I hold out the hope that once we figure this out, we can figure out how to help the brain rewire itself. So the chronic pain is not part of the picture. Now, that's not for tomorrow.
3: That's a ways off. <laughs> so what do we do, do in the interim? Because that, if that's a ways off, there must be something, and obviously, that we can do to alleviate some of that pain or at least modify it. Absolutely. And that's really what today
5: is about. That's what grabbed my attention. So I write and speak a lot for family caregivers, the people who are caring for aging parents or, or a partner or a child. And, of course, we're all our own caregivers. And again and again, I heard the same question. And the question is, what do you do when somebody that you love is in pain? What can I say? What can I do? You know, I'm not a doctor. I, I am afraid of saying the wrong thing. So what do I do? And I created the Connection Prescription and Pain Stompers as an answer to that question. Yeah, go ahead. What I believe is that you can decrease the intensity of pain by making a caring human connection. And here's the proof. You probably remember when you were a kid and you hurt yourself and you went to your mother and your mother washed off the bruised knee, put a Band-Aid on, kissed it, and said, they're all better. And it really was. There was something magical about what your mother did, and I call this mommy magic, and I believe that we can create mommy magic with anyone at any time by making a caring human
3: connection. All right, so. Dr. Vicky, give us an example of, of okay I, I, that, I had that experience, and I guess probably most of us did you 're absolutely right. Mommy kissed it, felt better, and you would run outside and scrape your knee again and, <laughs> and keep on going, but it 's true. Mommy made it better by just kissing it, but so give us an example though, with some of the pain management that you as a physician and as we as caregivers also have to deal with, and how does that work because it 's not quite that simple. It isn't, and I can speak from my own
5: experience when I was a family caregiver, and when I was dealing with some issues with my son, I took a leave of absence from my surgical practice. I stopped doing fun things with my family and friends, and what I found is because of this chronic pain, I became more physically and socially isolated. And that's what happens with many, many people with chronic pain. If they're home from work, they're isolated from their colleagues and things that brought them pleasure. They often stop doing fun things with family and friends. And what we know from these functional MRI studies is that the part of the brain that processes social isolation is exactly the same part that processes physical pain. So when we're isolated, the intensity of our pain increases. And conversely, I believe that when people with chronic pain experience a connection, I think that the brain probably creates its own endorphins, its own brain pain-treating medicine.
3: You know, that makes a lot of sense. I'm thinking back to your childhood analogy. Think about, I know, with my kids, I have three I had three boys, you know, all about the same age. And if one of them got hurt, I'd look, you know, I would, you know, assess the hurt and say, if you know, it was okay, but they were still, and I'd say, just go back and play and, and you'll forget about it. And they would. Right, exactly. And so you're
5: talking about the response to a painful stimuli. And we know that the brain is very sophisticated in actually telling you how and why you're going to respond. There's a new movie out about a surfer who was in a shark attack and the shark literally bit off her arm. And somehow or another, she was able to get away and not experience any pain at all. And we're designed to do that. The brain actually knows how to ignore the painful stimuli that are coming to it and it decides how to integrate it. So what you do, your response to the painful stimulus influences your experience of the pain.
3: So when you take the steps, and I want to get to the first step, at least before we take the break, because this connecting, that whole isolation, if we don't, it, we first start with not isolating ourselves, not isolating ourselves with the pain, then we have no distractions. Exactly. That's exactly right. And you know, one
5: of the, things I've always been curious about is why is pain worse at 3 in the morning than 3 in the afternoon? And I think there's a number of reasons. We have this variation of cortisol, which affects our experience of pain. At 3 in the morning, there's a good chance that you've missed a dose of pain medicine. But I think at 3 in the morning, there are no distractions, and you feel like you're alone in your pain and I think that's what makes it so bad. Solitary confinement is the worst punishment in our penal system. Yeah,
3: that isolation, and you know that also works for not just physical pain. Because you're right, you know your leg hurts you during the day, but you're so you're busy, you're doing things. You lie in bed at night, and at three in the morning, you can—that's all you feel is, is the pain. But also most people wake up in the middle of the night and there's also the emotional pain. They start thinking about you. you, I mean, I start thinking about everything that, that needs to be done or that I'm worried about, either about myself. It could be health. It could be work. It could be my kids. But during the day, there are so many other, and I'm saying positive distractions and interactions and connections, that it doesn't seem so overwhelming, all of these issues and problems, emotional. Absolutely, never worry alone. <laughs> Get everybody involved. Right, that's right. Well, I mean, that's why it helps to go to a therapist. I mean, or or a counselor, or have somebody just sit there and listen to you and walk out and say, you know, I feel much better. Absolutely. Not that the 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 problem necessarily is resolved, but that, that that there was that kind of a connection. So, but the first thing, set the emotional thermostat. You talk about that as one of the seven steps of the connection prescription. What is that?
5: every room has a physical temperature and I also believe that every room has an emotional temperature. And if you walk into the room, what happens is you normally assume the temperature that's there, but you can actually set your emotional thermostat. So I adopted an adult dog whose name is Elvira. She was a great dog. She was great with kids, well behaved, polite. The only thing was she was aggressive with other dogs. And I started modifying my lifestyle to go out and walk when we were least likely to run into other dogs. But at some point, I decided this is crazy. Like, I want to find a different way of dealing with this. So I got a dog trainer to come in, and she said, Vicki, you've got two problems. The first problem is your dog's aggression. Probably something happened when she was a puppy, and her aggression is really fear. But your second problem is your response you feed into her aggression and fear. And the most important thing that you can do is to assume calm leadership. So I think for many people in chronic pain, they experience this fear and this anguish, and it's very common for caregivers to resonate with that. But if you can just stay calm, set your emotional thermostat to calm, kind of like my dog trainer advised me to be the strong alpha.
3: That's going to help your loved one to whom you're reaching out. I'll give you an, a, a personal example of that. When I had my, finally I learned, but by my, I had my third uh, son, and I decided to have it with a, a midwife with a doctor who practiced midwifery and a midwife, and she and I am not someone who likes to be touched when I'm giving birth because you are in a lot of pain, no matter what and without if you don't have medication. And this midwife it, she did exactly what you're describing. She was so calm, and I didn't expect it. I really didn't expect it. And the way that she talked and the tone of her voice it really lowered the pain level and it surprised me and i had had other i wasn't a neophyte this you know was my third so it does work you are so right creating that emotional the thermostat and not making it chaotic but but relaxed and calm and that does alleviate a lot of the pain yes yeah let's take the next one let them take center stage that's another one of these seven steps of the connection prescription Right. So many people ask me, well, you
5: know, I just found out that a friend of mine has cancer and I want to call, but I can't figure out what to say. And I remind them that this is not a performance with them going on stage and figuring out what to say. It's the person in pain who takes center stage. And your job is to be there and witness them. So Oprah just went off the air and in her very, very last episode she said that she's done over 30,000 interviews and she has discovered that pretty much everyone wants the same thing. They want to know, do you hear me? Do you see me? Does what I say matter to you? And if you can help somebody in pain be seen and be heard and know that they matter, you're going to decrease the intensity of their physical pain.
3: So in other words, you're saying just pay attention, just listen. You,
5: you don't have to fix anything. All you have to do is just be there and listen to their story. So if somebody's telling you about their back pain or their headaches, instead of saying, well, hey, have you tried da-da-da-da-da, you can say, wow. What is that like for you? And just listen to what the pain means for them in their life. Just by doing that, they're going to
3: have less pain. And that's letting them take center stage. You're not the one who should be taking center stage when you're trying to help somebody who's in pain. It's their story, not yours. It's about them, yes. And for, for most of us, that's not easy. <laughs> it's not. It's It's
5: not easy at all. And if you
3: don't know what to say, it's really okay to say, I don't know what to say, but I'm here. And don't feel that the onus is on you. I think sometimes when people feel the onus is on them, I've had a lot of uh, friends, for instance, who won't go visit anybody, let's say who is is terminally ill, who has cancer, because they're afraid they won't say the right thing. They're too uncomfortable. uh, So they... So they isolate them. So it it makes it worse. It exacerbates the situation. Absolutely.
5: And I think people have good intentions. Like they don't want to make things worse. But what they don't understand is that staying away is the worst
3: thing that they can do. All right. So that's. That, we've only gotten to number two, but we can keep on going with the note. shield them from your pain. And I have a question about this one, but first explain to every, to wh- what you mean by shield them from your pain, the person who is in pain. Okay. So I was at my son's Little League game. It was the bottom of the last
5: inning. My son's team was at bat. They were one run behind. There were two outs, bases loaded, and guess who comes up to bat? It was my <laughs> son. Nice And, you know, he wanted to be the team hero. And it was a very dramatic at-bat. It was a full count. The next pitch comes, and I hear the ball hit the bat, look up to see the third baseman field the ball, and send it home for the final out. And I looked at my son, and he was just dripping with disappointment. But the truth is that he was the one on the playing field and I was the one in the stands. And I have my own issues when I look at my son in pain, but what's really important is to be clear about whose pain it is. My job at that point on the ride home was to be there for my son and help him process his disappointment. My disappointment was important too, and I can deal with that at some other time. But being clear about who is on the field at any time has has been helpful for me.
3: But Dr. Vicki, what about this? Can this work too? I always think about let's say, well, yours is a good example. Your son, he feels disappointed. He feels make, he lost the game or whatever. He's in pain. Do you think not sh- say as a as a mother or as a father or the person who takes care of the, you know the the, the, uh, the whoever it is, that you can share your own experiences and say, well, I identify, in certain ways, I'm identifying with this pain, I know how you feel, Um, I I felt badly, too, in a similar situation, or I feel badly, too, that's okay, but, or, that, you know, uh, we both feel bad, he feels badly differently, obviously, because he's the one who, you know, didn't win the game, but Or or do do you really have to distance yourself in that way? Oh, I'm not saying distancing yourself.
5: And I think that what you're suggesting is a very, very helpful tool. And the question is just a question of timing. When's the best time to share your own experience with disappointment? And you know the person that you love well. And so you have a sense of when the time is right. And by the way, with my son... I've just basically, instead of um, reprimanding him, I've, I've just started telling him stories about times that I made similar mistakes and stupid things that I've done. And, and that's a great teaching tool. Um, but you never really know what the experience is like for somebody. Like, what if you had MS? What if somebody you love had MS? Do you really have any experience that, can resonate with that experience. And I'm not quite, it's not clear to me that we can. So my suggestion is just to focus on what their experience of the pain is. What does the pain mean to them and how has it
3: influenced their life? All right, I maybe I've made some mistakes then. I have to think about that one because I tend to do that, yes, and especially if I'm you know, with someone who has a chronic illness like MS and I don't, you know, I haven't had MS, but I may have had something similar, even if it's not MS, there's something that I can tie into. And maybe you do mention this, I think, and is one of the seven connectors that I can tie into with their experience. You know, I I don't have MS. I know that, but I've had, I've had other situations where I have, you know, felt whether it's emotional or physical pain and um, I have some, you know, I, I can relate to it because sometimes when people, the one thing that I don't like when I'm not feeling well is when so, or I've gone through a crisis and someone says to me, "I have no idea. I, I can't imagine how you're feeling." Well, it makes me feel like, "My God, my this is like really the worst thing in the world." It does that. That's not helpful to me. But I don't think that's what you mean.
5: No, it's a, But let me just ask, what is most helpful for you in that circumstance?
3: If if I have I'm in crisis, either emotional or physical. I think probably the first thing that you said, if someone just, at least initially, and there's a time frame for this in the beginning, if they just listen to me, you know, talk and and, and be there and not judge and be understanding and attend to whatever maybe my needs are at the time, um, but don't and I, this is maybe ties into what you're saying if they get too wordy if they talk too much then i have to start focusing on them which is that center stage thing and mm-hmm. i'm using up too much energy i need to focus on me mm-hmm. in a positive way mm-hmm. so i think that that those first 3 um prescriptions are uh, are really important i don't want to have to start thinking about somebody else's pain that they you know you're now you're the social worker and I'm a patient here, I'm a client. Uh, yeah, I want to just be able to, to calm down and to relax and to not have to be involved in somebody else's life necessarily. Is, right. that, is that what you mean? Uh, that's exactly what I mean.
5: And from my experience as a surgeon, what I can tell you is that I can do the exact same operation on 100 different patients And they're going to have a 100 different responses. Each person is going to have a different amount of pain, take a different amount of pain medicine, be away from work for different amounts of time. So it doesn't really matter if another patient has had the same operation. Really, what's most important for a patient in pain is their experience of the post-operative episode. It's um,
3: and you nev- you just never know what it's like for somebody else. We have a couple minutes left. And I, and people need to you know go to your website and obviously um, uh, they can get more information. Uh, and you do have a great website because it's always ongoing and evolving. But one last, what do we do? Because we are such a. a a drug-oriented society and, you know, turn on the 6 o'clock news and, you know, we are told if you have pain, take this medication and that medication. How do we respond to our physicians when we don't want to go that route necessarily? You know, we'd like to do, as you described, uh, on pain stompers. I mean, and not over-medicate ourselves just because we are in chronic pain. Right. Well,
5: doctors have medical goals. So they're going to suggest operations and medication to try to cure you or try to minimize the pain. And what i focus on is your physical goal, your personal goal. What is it that the pain keeps you from doing? And then ask the question, how can I do more of that in my life? If you've got chronic knee pain and you love to garden, how is it that I can get out and do more gardening? So focus on the personal goal and understand that the doctor might not be the best person to figure out how to meet those personal goals, but your doctor might be able to refer you to somebody else like a physical therapist or an occupational therapist. And just remember, remember the connection prescription. Know that just by making caring human connections with other people, not worrying alone, not being in pain
3: alone, that you can make it better great advice and I want to make sure that I have given the right to, oh, I know I have painstompers.com and also is there a telephone number that listeners can go to you to reach you if there are more questions or do we do it all through the, the, the internet
5: no anyone is welcome to call me welcome to email me my telephone number is 425 425- Four five one three seven seven seven, and
3: the reason that I answer the phone is because it helps me help other people, and that's exactly what you're doing. Always great to have you on the show. We thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me, Doctor Vicky Ra- Doctor Vicky Ratner, and she is founder of Pain Stompers, PainStompers.com, and you can go to her website. Um, We have to say goodbye. It's been a great morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and it's the Catherine Zox Show. Hope you have a good week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday.
2: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week
5: for more interviews and great conversations with Katherine Zox.